welcome to the Not Rich Yet podcast, where we have meaningful discussions to help you level up in all things money, entrepreneurship, and leadership. I'm your host, Jasmine Sukmanen. I'm a financial journalist, and I have about six years of experience in the media industry. It is the night before Thanksgiving, and I think a lot of people have just kind of mentally and physically checked out of work, um, checked off of their laptop. So I'm feeling extra thankful that tonight's guest decided to spend her evening talking to me about one of my favorite topics, and that is real estate property and rental income. So tonight's guest is Allison Ulo. She is a PR consultant. She's the CEO and founder of a CPGT company called Leaves of Leisure. And not too long ago, she actually bought a property and she earns rental income from that property by listing it on Airbnb. So if you've ever wanted to do something similar, this is the episode for you. Allison, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I am so hyped to get into everything. Um, for yeah. me personally, I've always wanted to own property to earn additional income from um, because, you know, my parents house hack uh, and I've seen them. I've really grown through grown up through that process, watching them uh, do all of that. They've been house hacking since I was in middle school um, wow. and I'm in my mid twenties now. So I've seen this process um, from my own perspective. Um, so it's something that I've personally become very interested in doing for myself, but I want to hear from you has, you know, purchasing real estate and earning income from it been something that you've always wanted to do? Um, yeah. So actually, well, I would say it really came from the fact that I was working in hospitality for about 10 years. And when I started working in hospitality, I really started to like understand this sort of aspect of like dealing with guests and like, you know, Working, I worked at a hotel too. So it was like a hotel and a bar within a hotel. And so really got this firsthand experience of hospitality in general. And I love to travel. I love to go away on weekends as much as I love my tiny apartment in New York City. If anyone else has experienced it, it's very small living <laughs> for like a lot of money. And this idea of being able to have like a weekend home to get away always felt like incredibly appealing. And I think when I really like started to, um, you know, work in hospitality and understood this, I like, guess, management and all of these things, I was like, I think it would be so cool if I could purchase a home and then, um, you know, and then like somehow generate money on it. So I would be able to like actually pay for the mortgage of the home and then actually be able to, um, you know, use it as well, like use it when I wanted to and actually be able to like take weekends away and do this. And it would basically be like a built in vacation home. Yeah, for sure. When you think about it, you know, it's, it's something that gives you double the benefit, right? Uh, yeah. You're earning that income from the times when you're not using it. So it's literally paying for itself. But then when you do feel like having a getaway, it's there for you. You don't have to pay for a hotel. You don't have to uh, stay at a different Airbnb property. It's just there and ready for you to use however you feel like it. Yeah. And I think too, like, the Airbnb idea came like later on, you know, I'd wanted to own property for a while. I like, I saw the benefit of owning real estate, especially like being in New York city. And when I was pretty young living in the city, I was, when I was working in hospitality and I was making a lot of money, I was like, I should start stashing this money away and like buy an apartment in the city. Mm -hmm. But like, I wouldn't have been able to buy anything that was like more than a studio. And so I kept kind of like putting it on the back burner, but then when Airbnb kind of launched and like really took off and I saw other people doing it, then I was like, 
I should really look into this. This is something I think I could like feasibly do if I really like mapped it out. Yeah. And there are so many really um, interesting Airbnb markets like, um, and of course, regulations and rules that go along with it. Like I know you, right. (laughs) Like I know in Jersey, um, you, you cannot have essentially an Airbnb property, unless you can prove that you actually own it. Like I know so many people will uh, sign a lease to rent an apartment or rent a house and they'll like chat with the landlord and be like, Hey, can I uh, rent out this space when I'm not using it to earn income? And some landlords are fine with it. um, But I know in New Jersey, it's actually the law that you cannot do that. Um, unless you can prove that you own this property. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You bought a cabin. The property that you ended up purchasing was yep. a cabin in the Catskills. It is, yeah. Yeah. How did you, I guess, what was your thought process when it came to uh, choosing that location and that yeah. property? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I did a lot of research. So I actually had a couple of friends who had gone through the process prior. They were friends who definitely were like more financially well off than I was. So they were like buying in maybe areas that like were more like already established. Um, but I had a couple friends in Connecticut and then there was a couple people in the Catskills that I knew. And then I originally, what I really wanted was like a beach house. Um mm but I'm also a really big fan of the Catskills and of the woods. I grew up kind of going to a cabin with my family on weekends. Um, And I kind of looked at houses in all, all of those areas. Um, And I felt like it made the most sense to do the Catskills because there was so much traffic from the city that goes to the Catskills. It was kind of like a built in area where like, it's so, saturated now with like people going there on weekends that was almost like kind of can't lose even if you buy in an area up there that's not quite as established it's not like quite the coolest town yet people are going to be open to staying there because they're still you're only ever like 20 or 30 minutes away from like a super cool thing or a super cool town um and so that was really why I chose to go Catskills and then my house is actually in Ellenville which is actually up until like recently was not necessarily like a very cool part of the Catskills. It was kind of like a blue collar-esque town that I think got a kind of a bad rap that it had like some maybe bad years that people were like, you know, not loving it. A lot of the houses like had gotten let go and people weren't like really keeping them up to date and the the town itself, there wasn't necessarily a lot of like establishments, um, but all the towns around it have really gotten built up over the last couple of years. And I kind of went there and, and viewed the house under like, you know, it was like, ah, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Kind of taking in what other people had said to me, like, oh, you shouldn't buy there. It's not good. You know, you, you want to buy somewhere that's already established. But I saw how much the town itself was like really working to be a more like destination on the map. There was like a a group of women specifically that are in the town that like have local businesses, like right on the main street. And they work so hard. Some of them are like city expats. Some of them are originally from Allenville, but they like work so hard at making it like a go-to destination. And I think whenever you have towns like that, that are clearly working towards like bringing in uh, guests and bringing in people like who are traveling to the area, I think that's a really great sign. And if you buy early, you get a better price and you know that that property is going to be worth more down the way. So it was really why I decided to kind of, it was definitely a risk to choose to like do it in a town that wasn't already established. But I think it was so, it's so close to so many towns that are doing really well and that town itself is like really working so hard at it I was like this is the this is the time to buy in and I think like even now I'm like oh I wish I had enough money to like go buy another house in the same town (laughs) it's so funny that you mentioned Ellenville because um I remember on my high school senior class trip our trip was to Ellenville 
at a resort. Um, it was called Honors Haven <laughs> Resort. Oh, was it, I was gonna say, was it Honors or was it Neville? They're, they're, those were like the two <laughs> resorts there. That's really funny. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so funny you mentioned that. Um, but it's so interesting to see how, you know, people, a lot of people had their doubts about purchasing property in this town, but you kind of looked at it from a perspective of, well, New York City is there uh, and this town could get people uh, being funneled up from the city. So it makes it such a good location. And of course, just the people in the town who are working to, you know, in a way, put it on the map a little bit more and make it really attractive to tourists. How did you go about doing some of that more specific, more nitty gritty research? Like as to like why it was going to be a tourist attraction? Yes. Yeah. I think like what really sold me was like this women's coalition in Ellenville and they were working to get press like early on, like almost right after I bought it, like there was a huge article in the New York times that came out mm. just about Ellenville. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Like they were working really hard and there was also, there's actually this app, which I would really recommend to anyone who's either considering going to buy upstate or like has recently bought upstate and it's called upstate curious. And, um, it's one of the women behind that is also like really good friends with all these women that I'm talking about that are like all very pro Ellenville. And they, it's basically like a bunch of, uh, like-minded people who have homes in, in and around the Catskill or Hudson Valley area. And they like help each other, like answer questions about like, do you like this town? Or I need a contractor for my house or I need a plumber. And everyone like kind of chimes in and gives you advice but it's like very much more on like a neighborhood vibe rather than like a you know like uh you know some of those like bigger platforms where you don't necessarily know who you're getting you're getting like real people who live there and that like you could meet and talk to if you want to um and so I also went on there and like asked questions um it also sold me like the neighbor that lived in the house next to my house was like her and her husband like were both from Brooklyn and had moved there And I think like all of those things, it just started to be like, okay, there's all these people that are like from the city moving here. The town had a really cool vintage store. It had a really cool, some restaurants and like, like restaurants that are rated really well, like known as like great restaurants in the Catskills. And I think whenever you start seeing stuff like that, if there's stuff that you can recommend to your guests as like, these are things like that I can recommend to you that are going to be a good time. That's when, you know, you've, you've found a good spot. You know, I think it's a, it's a careful balance of having space and feeling like, you know, you're not in a neighborhood. Like my house is very like secluded in a lot of ways, but you're 10 minutes away from restaurants. You're 10 minutes away from shopping and you're 30 minutes away from really big destinations like Mohonk mountain house, which like, to me, those, those were all really big things like that within 30 minutes, you could be at really big destinations. And that within 10 minutes, you could be getting food and shopping. Those are fantastic points. And also just shout out to those women lifting up that economy. I love to see that. (laughs) Yeah, they're very cool. And they're like very inspiring. I, I have met a few of them, but I definitely like if I lived there, more frequently, I would definitely like want to join them. They're definitely like a really interesting, cool group of women that are really artistic and strong. And like, they're just really driving it this summer. They even like they, and into fall, they like started something where they're like showing movies in Ellenville, like outside, like movies in the park um, and doing like activities like that, that brings, you know, people in. And like, it's the reason that people show up and want to do stuff. There's like a blueberry festival. There's all these things that like, I think, for a really long time didn't exist, that they work really hard, that when they hear that people are looking to either open a business or have a festival or do something that they want to host it, they want to be a part of it. Yeah, that makes me wonder if other small towns have something similar um, or if other small towns just have like organizations that are very heavy on um, tourist outreach. uh, um, I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I think that it's like whoever ends up being like the people who are running those small towns. um, I think it's, you know, if they feel really strongly about tourism and that's something that's like 
you know, really important to them, you see more things popping up. And I think when you start, you know, if you can figure out who that is in the town that you're thinking about buying in, and you know, that's something that's important to them, that's a really good sign. You want that. You don't want to be in the town with an Airbnb that's like very closed off to Airbnbs. (laughs) That's very closed off to like tourism as a whole. You don't want to be there. So you definitely want to find out like, what is that town's take on tourism? And are they open to it? And are they encouraging of it? I love that point. And I also think another massive takeaway um, in conjunction with that point um, is for anyone who's kind of doing that location research, trying to figure out if a certain town or a city would be a great location to purchase um, property to use as a vacation rental is to look out for local organizations and reach out to them and Mm -hmm. talk to them, ask them questions about, you know, what's it like on a typical weekend, ask them about things to do, ask them about what they've observed going on in their own town that can give you so many good answers and help you figure out if a certain location, um, you know, is what you think it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, it is really important to be in a welcoming area. There are some towns upstate that are very anti Airbnb Mm -hmm. and they definitely have good reason for, for feeling that way. I I do understand the flip side. Um, but I don't think like that's a, that's a good investment for like the long term to buy in areas like that, because then, you know, even like Woodstock and stuff, they only, they only give out a few amount of permits a year for Airbnbs. Wow. Um, they give out very few and it's, it's really hard to get on it. Right. And, and I think also like there's a possibility if you buy it, maybe you get the permit one year and you don't get it another year. It can be a whole thing. So I think like you definitely want to make sure you're choosing an area where you're not getting closed out. Also, if that's like the reason that you're buying the house, I think it's different if people are like, Oh, I'm eventually going to live there. Then maybe that doesn't matter. But for someone like me, like it was always meant as an investment property. It was really important. I was always going to be able to rent it. That's exactly right. So when exactly did you purchase the cabin and what was kind of the state of the market at the time? Yeah, so I bought it sort of a terrible time in some people's eyes, I guess. Um, I bought in 2021. I started looking actually, I started considering it in 2000, at the end of 2020, in like November of 2020. And then in 2021, I was looking for like a lot of months. I spent a lot of weekends going up and looking at a lot of different houses. And what was happening during that time was even though loan rates were really low, the market that was so oversaturated with buyers and not enough sellers, which meant that all of the houses were going like between 18 to 25% over asking. Mm-hmm. So even if you saw like kind of like a crummy house that was like $350,000, you should have automatically known that like you were going to have to offer like 15 to 25% over to even get it considered. And people were buying like really like houses that like kind of didn't like deserve to be bought in a lot of ways. Like they weren't like, they weren't fancy or great houses and they were getting bought so overpriced, so ridiculously overpriced, including mine. Um, And I think it made it really difficult because also there were so many offers on every single house. Mm-hmm. Um, that like, I probably made like 15, 10 to 15 offers on houses before I got an accepted one that went through. Um, yeah. And so it was like a really crazy time and it was really stressful. So basically you, if you went and you, you liked it and you thought like, maybe it could be a possibility you needed to put an offer in like right then in there. It was so crazy at some point I had like four offers in on four different houses all at the same time. And I didn't get any of them. Wow. Yeah. So it was like, like very wild. Um, but when my house and and a lot of them too, at that time were all cash, people were taking all cash offers. Um, and so if somebody came in and offered all cash, even who was under everyone, like they would just take it. So people who had money, like for liquid, like financially well-off in a liquid sense, um, were like making out like bandits, but for anyone who's trying to take a loan out, you were, it was, it was, you were buying your house for a cost that you like 
if you were living in it and you were not renting it out, you might not necessarily make that when you decided to sell it again. It made sense for me, I think, because in the end, like that money becomes sort of like irrelevant over a course of a time when you're renting it and you're actually making money on your property. But if I was buying that house, putting all this money in it to live in it for like five years, and then I was going to like sell it, I wouldn't have made, I would never make my money back on that house. Right. And I also want to emphasize too, that, um, especially for people, you know, who do not have a ton of liquid wealth, um, when you are, uh, offering, like putting in a much higher offer for a property, you essentially have a little less money to put towards things like renovations and emergency uh, repairs and things like that, which can put you in a really terrible situation. If you close on that house, you uh, start to get things going, moving in and things like that. And then all of a sudden you need to replace the boiler. Yeah, it was something I thought about a lot. So my, my real estate agent and a lot of people were like, you have to put at least 20% down. And I was like, if I put 20% down, I'm going to have like no cash left. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that doesn't feel good to me. And I was like, I, I don't want to put 20% down. I want to put 10 down. And they were like, well, it's going to take you a lot longer to be able to close on a house because no buyer wants your 10%. Like it's going to be like a very specific person who's going to accept that deal um, because everyone else has like more cash in essence, right? They want as much cash upfront as they can get. And I held out. And I held out because I knew it was the right financial move for me. I could have probably gotten another house if I had done the 20, but I knew that if something went wrong with the house, I wasn't going to feel financially stable. But that if I did the 10%, that if I had to do renovations or if something really terrible happened, I'd be able to figure it out because I did have cash left over. And so it was definitely like went into my decision-making, like thinking about all of that. Yeah. And with such a competitive market, in the backdrop, um, influencing, uh, which offers get accepted and which offers get rejected. Do was there anything that you felt like really helped you get approved for your, with your offer? Um, well, yes. So we, there, I was open to some incentives, but I wasn't open to everything. During that time, it was a time where people were doing like a lot of deals were basically like you do it without an ex- out an inspection. You don't like you accept it like as is, which is like a, a very specific choice to make. I wasn't willing to do that. But like when I did the inspection on the house, there was some stuff that was definitely wrong with the house that I did know up front. And um, I decided to like not make a big deal about that, knowing that I would fix it and I would take it as is. So things like, like something, I I mean, I, for better or for worse, I decided not to make a big deal about the basement, which the basement that the cabin that I own is from 1920. So it's over a hundred years old. And um, yeah. And so she had a lot of problems. And uh, one of them was that the basement is um, like an old stone basement. Like they used to make them. And there was water that was coming in through the stone and it was leaving water on the ground of the basement. And it was definitely not flooding. There was not flooding in the house. But when you leave water like that, standing water, it can create mold, bacteria. It invites all kinds of really nasty things. So I knew that that was something that I was going to have to deal with. And I knew it was going to be like in a fairly expensive endeavor. But the seller like didn't want to deal with it. That's why he was like, trying to offload the house in like in some ways. Right. So that was also why I got the house because I was like willing to forego that situation. Whereas like, if you were looking to move in and have the house be perfect, like you, you wouldn't have foregone all that stuff. Like you wouldn't, if I was gone through the inspection and all these things were wrong, normally speaking, you would go back to the seller and you'd say, here's all the things the inspection said was wrong here are the things that you need to fix before I finalize it. But during that time, if you had done that, he would have just gone to a different buyer who was willing to accept it. So I had to decide like, what am I willing to forgo and what am I willing to, and what, where do I want to push back? So I pushed back on smaller things. I had him like change out the boiler. That was like very old. Um, I had him add a water pump because like the water pressure in the house is very low. 
um, things like that. But then I took on like the big cost of redoing the basement. That all sounds extremely stressful, um, especially <laughs> for someone who has never purchased a property before. How are you, you know, managing that just mentally, financially, <laughs> and, on, and on top of all the things you already do as a PR consultant and as the founder yeah. of this company? Yeah, it was a lot. I definitely took on too much at one time. There's like no doubt about that. Um, but I had made a decision, you know, like once I was in, I was like, I'm doing this. And I, it just didn't feel like, I was like, I'm not backing down. Like I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to keep moving forward and plowing forward. Um, it was really stressful. And initially when I did a lot of the decision makings, which I think, you know, going like if I was going to go back, I would make very different decisions. But at that time, I really like I wanted to feel like an adult. I really wanted to take it on. So I didn't call anyone. I didn't ask anyone for any advice. Um, you know, I was talking to like my real estate agent and my partner and um, like the, like, you know, the guy who was inspecting the home, but like as a whole, like I didn't call my parents initially and ask for help to go over anything, or I didn't call like any, anyone else that maybe had a better idea of anything and go over it. And I think it was because like, I didn't want to be talked out of it either. Like mm -hmm. I knew the house was old. I knew it had a lot of issues and I knew it would be a horrifying like thing for most people. Like unless you're in real estate and unless you're, that's like a, a path you've gone down. Like it was, it was going to horrify most people that like, that was a house I was going to choose to buy um, at that price. Um, but I knew, you know, I knew if I ran the numbers and if it made sense, like that's what mattered most. And so I just like, I really just like kept running the numbers and reminded myself, like, if the numbers make sense, the purchase makes sense. It doesn't all have to be perfect. And sometimes like the houses that make the most money aren't always the ones that are like super beautiful and super perfect and all of those things. They're sometimes the ones that have character. And ultimately it's just about if you can turn a profit on the house and you're in an area that like, you know, that the property value is either going to stay the same or continue to rise. And I, I knew that like I was in an area that like the property was going to continue to rise. And the, the property that the house is on is like really magical. It's very secluded. It's surrounded by so much woods. You like don't really have any neighbors. There's a babbling brook across the street. Um, and I knew that was really special and that like at the very least, like the house wasn't really what the property like was the wasn't really the worth of the property. It was like the property itself. Um, so I just had, had to keep reminding myself of that, keep running the numbers and keep reminding myself that like, that's the stuff that mattered. It wasn't like I needed to, like, I can, I can fix all the other stuff. It might not come easy. It might be really hard, but I had to like really focus on like what my outcome was and what my goal was and that like, I knew I could do it. Yeah. I mean, a babbling brook woods, it sounds like <laughs> something out of a fairy tale, to be honest. It is. It's like, it's really, it's a very cool piece of property. It's like very unique in that way. And I think what's unique about it is that you do have this like seclusion, but like you're so close to reality. So like, you know, I think sometimes people's fear is like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to this like really secluded spot. But like, what if something happens to my grandmother or to mm -hmm. my kid or something? And then I'm like, not near a hospital, like the hospitals within 10 minutes, like the fire, like the fire company is within five minutes, like the police are 10 minutes. So like you have all these things that make you feel safe and secure and fun that are nearby, but you also like you go outside and there, there's no other houses. Like you're just looking at the woods and listening to the babbling brook. And so that made it, I knew that that was going to make it really special. And I knew that the property across the street was all owned by one person. And it's like over 200 acres owned by one person. So the likelihood of that getting developed is really low. And that's important too, to like, kind of like, if you can figure out like the property around your house, like where that's going, like it would be horrifying to like buy property and then find out that like they were developing, like, like crushing all the woods across your street and making it into like, uh, you know, a full blown neighborhood that would kill the value of your home. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and in talking about, um, some numbers, uh, you know, I feel like we, especially um, in, you know, the personal finance realm, I feel like we hear a lot um, from experts, uh, you know, make the numbers make sense to you and things like that, yeah. which is very smart advice, um, you know, 
because if those numbers do not make sense to you, uh, you're, you're setting yourself up for disaster, to be honest. So when exactly. you were trying to analyze whether or not things made sense for you, what factors were you looking at? So originally when I was looking at it, right, like the money that you're initially putting in, I needed to have a certain amount of money set aside for repairs, furniture, that kind of stuff. And then it was sort of like the date frame of how long I thought it would take to turn it around and actually get rental money coming back into the property. Um, And so I actually, I looked online, there's a lot of different sites that have like Excel spreadsheets and different things that like help have you curate everything. And I took one and then I revamped it to work specifically for me, Um, but like had a lot of the formulas in that I needed and then just like revamped it and worked it for me. And then that way, every single time I go see a house, let's say the house was like a $350,000 house or something. And I was putting 10% down. And then I would like, look it up. You can go on like air DNA. I would look it up and say, here's the address of the house. Like what do rental properties in that area go for per night? And then I would put in like that, like the low, the lowest one of the, of that area. And I would put all those numbers in and put in like, you know, all the, all the money I assumed I was going to be putting in up front. And then I'd see like, you know, I would have like, a six month projection, a one year projection, a three year projection, a five year projection, and really see like how many months or how many years was it going to take me to make my money back? And where would I be, you know, and how much money would I actually be making if I was, you know, renting out the house at $200 a night, um, you know, six, six times a month or something. And you can keep running those numbers. And all you have to do is like change a few little things in your Excel and keep seeing like, what would the results of that be? So I kept doing it and I would do it on the lower end. I'd make sure like, you know, obviously we all, we want the house to be rented all the time, but you know, worst case scenario it only rents like three weekends a month or something. You know, what did that number look like? If, even if it, the house was only renting at like the lower end, if it was renting at 200 instead of 400 a night. So I just kept running those numbers. And if it made sense on the low end, then I would make an offer on a house. And this is called Air DNA. Yeah. So Air DNA is actually a really cool company to check like where great property is and like where great investment properties are. And they have a tool on there that allows you, that's free, that allows you to put in the address of like the property and find out like how much you could be renting that house for um, based on other homes in the area. So um, it gives you a good idea, right? It's not always perfect, but it gives you a really accurate idea of like what the potential is. And that's really what you're making your estimate on is like, the potential. And I always do the potential because I'm very conservative on the, like the worst case scenario. If the worst case scenario, I can like cover this, you know, even if it's not renting that well, and it's not doing that well, if I can mostly cover everything, then it's a good investment. Um, and then obviously the hope is that you do better than that. And you're actually like reaching your goals sooner, but yeah, AirDNA is a very cool tool that I would definitely suggest. This sounds like a fantastic tool for mm-hmm. people who want to start to see some of those projections, but who don't know how to go about starting to do the math on that. Yeah, they don't have, I didn't get the Excel through them. I found that on like another website, but, and then I just like made it work for me. You know, I like just changed things out to make it work for me. But the, one of the best things about AirDNA is it gives you that key number, which is like, how do you know how much you're really going to be able to charge per night at that house in that area? if you don't know what other homes in that area go for and how busy they're frequently rented in that area and air DNA has all that information. And so they, you know, they can project it for you pretty accurately. And then you can get a good idea of like, if the area you're looking in is an area that people actually, you know, go to and rent and rent at like a decent amount. Yeah. I feel like that's also such a great reminder that, you know, there are certain things that are relative um, to what else is in that surrounding location, because, you know, these are considerations to make when you're thinking about how to price your property, um, how to price, uh, a nightly stay, you know, you're not going to, uh, upcharge hundreds of dollars for, you know, a normal little property in an area where most other, people are charging just a few hundred a night. Yeah. It's a really important thing to keep in mind, right? That at the end of the day, we don't actually have 
control over it in that way, right? Like you can't guarantee that what you want to rent your house at is what it's actually going to rent at. So the best way to figure out like the possibilities is to use a service like AirDNA where you can really like figure out that nitty gritty and does like that feel good to you? Because if it doesn't feel good to you, like maybe you don't want to move forward with that house. If you can see that like houses that are five bedroom houses are only getting $200 a night in that area, that's really low, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's not a good area for you to, to get that house in. Absolutely. And so I know you had a few ups and downs with this property. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so from the moment you closed on the cabin mm -hmm. to the moment you listed it on Airbnb, what was happening in that in-between? <laughs> yeah, I closed on the house and then I cried the whole way home. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it was very scary. I, I was by myself and I made all these decisions by myself and I, I was like, it's, it was so real. You know, I like handed over this massive check, like my life savings. And then I like drove home after and I was just like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? <laughs> um, and I knew that the house had problems, but I was like, I can do it. You know, I felt like, so like empowered I could do it. And then I, I closed and I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I can't. Um, but then once I actually had access to the house, I went in and I like started, you know, assessing everything and having people come out. And because I work full time in the city, I could only go out on weekends. So it was really stacking like Saturdays, like meeting with tons of people every Saturday, like to come give quotes, to come look at stuff, you know, how am I going to fix this? And the house in the beginning, which like no one ever tells you is so scary. There's no furniture in it. Um, like the cabin had like spiders in it. I had to go like spider killing and like put a blow up mattress in it and like stay there overnight while I was like waiting to meet with these people. There's like this like beginning part that like feels so like overwhelming and just like horrible. And there was a lot of people who I hired in the beginning that I maybe like didn't know what I was doing. And again, because the area is so like oversaturated with people buying homes in that area there was all like the really amazing contractors and great people were like scooped up and there's a lot of people who are not great at their job or like not even real contractors like putting themselves out there as people you should hire um and so there's a lot of like scamming happening oh that and really you'll sucks. like yeah you'll, you'll like hear about it all the time if you talk to people upstate like these horrible situations that people have gotten into and I definitely had one that was like not really like a really bad one and I, I was like I went into the the concept of being like I'm gonna hire somebody and they're gonna do the work for this budget and it's gonna be perfect and the house is gonna be up and running in like three months like that was the story I told myself in my head <laughs> and uh he like was like oh yeah I can do all of this stuff and then like every step of the way there was like really big issues and I realized um like kind of like two months in that I had made a bad choice in hiring this person um, and then I had to fire them and decide like, what am I going to do? And one of the things I realized when I fired him was like, I was really low on cash. And even if I was going to hire somebody else and figure out, that out financially, like the house was never going to get up and running the time frame I had initially mapped out in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, so I actually called my parents and was like, um, like maybe you could help me do some of the renovations on my own. Like if I watch some YouTube videos and go up on <laughs> weekends and like, could maybe dad bring his tools and could we like figure some of this stuff out? And my parents were like, oh my gosh, please. Like you never ask us for anything. You're the most independent, annoying kid of all time. Like, please <laughs> let us come and help you do some of this stuff. Like, you know, my parents in their seventies are like, we can't do everything, but like, we can at least tell you how to do it because we've probably done it in our own homes over the years. And like, figured out like how to renovate things like on a very like cheap way. So they started coming up when they could on weekends and like showing me how to do stuff. And it just everything, it was really hard in some days, but like as a whole, like it just came together easier. Like it felt better to have somebody else there helping me. And maybe the renovations that we did weren't like the most fancy renovations by any means, but it like got the job done. And it allowed me to get the house up and running to a place. And then I could make a new goal of like when I was going to have it ready to rent. Um, 
And then I like, you know, once you get past some of those like really initial, like hard things, things start to get easier. Once I got furniture in the house, it wasn't so scary to stay there anymore. (laughs) And, you know, it took like probably four months to get the oven to work. Um, the oven was like an oven that like clearly the person who had sold me the house, like just threw in there and it was not converted for propane. It was, um, it was a gas stove and you have to have like these special pieces on it. You have to change to propane, um, because they, they won't work together. I won't like bore you with the details of that, but like it won't work together. And I spent like weeks and months trying to find the exact part pieces that I need to like make this stove work. So it was just like stuff like that. That was like, everything felt so hard. And then like, once you finally tackle something, it got a little easier. And then like, it would get a little easier. I definitely felt like the house fought me every step of the way. Like she didn't want a makeover. Um, (laughs) um, Now I feel like it's, you know, it's easier. Like I, I was there getting the house ready for winter and like put on all the storm windows and I had to change some other windows in the upstairs loft area. And I, I changed the windows myself with, with my dad. And like this window that we changed the last time I was there, like went so much easier than the first two windows we changed. So like everything gets easier. It's just like in the beginning, it feels very overwhelming. And I think as someone who had never done any like renovations and who had spent all this money paying someone that I thought was going to do it all for me. Um, it was like very devastating and hard in the beginning. But once I sort of got, got to a place where it was like, I'm doing it, I'm going to control it. I'm now back in the driver's seat. It, it made it easier. And I, I think like not everyone has to go the route I did where it's like, I chose to do the renovations myself, but I would say like, really know who you're going to hire and spend your money on because like I would have maybe been able to save that money and do the renovations from the start or I maybe would have been able to use that money to pay someone that like really knew what they were doing if I had really like gone the extra mile to figure out like exactly who I should hire and I was so trigger happy like I was just so excited to have the house and so excited to get moving that I like didn't do enough research when I hired someone also like you know, there, you couldn't have known really that this was what was going to end up happening. There are so many professionals out there who, you know, they try to make themselves seem as appealing as possible. Uh, well, so he came they, recommended through someone. So it was like a real shame. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah that feels even worse. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> It's bad, but honestly, it's not even the worst story I've heard of happening to people. There. Oh, no. Yeah. Like there's so many horror stories, but I think like, um, something that I do think is interesting and really smart for people is I think that so many people get very like tunnel vision, like everything has to be perfect before you rent it. And I actually didn't do that and I wouldn't recommend it. I think you can get the, your house almost perfect and then continue to add it even after you start making money, because once you start making money on the house, it doesn't hurt so much to spend money on the house, right? right? In the beginning, you're freaking out because you're pouring all this dough into a house that isn't being rented and you're not even using it. All it's doing is like bringing you a headache. So I was like, if I can get this rented and I can get it in a decent enough place to get it rented and have money start coming in, then I can use some of that money to finish what I originally wanted to do. And it was really smart. It wasn't anything that most people could see, but like the basement, for instance, the basement really needed an overhaul, but the basement had been there for over a hundred years and it wasn't going to make a difference if it took another six months to get the basement done. So I like didn't have the basement done before I had guests start staying there and they would never have access to the basement anyway. So it didn't make a difference, but it made a huge difference for me financially. I had money coming in by the time I paid the person to come fix my basement. So there's things like that, that you can decide to do that. I think you know, doesn't have to be perfect. Every little detail doesn't have to be like 3000% the way you want it just to be able to start renting it and have cash coming in. And I think that was like a, a learning thing for me to like, to have to let go of my perfectionism and let go of this idea that every little thing in the house was going to be perfect. Like, you know, a little crack in the wall happened because like the heat and the cold can like crack your walls. if like the plaster isn't done right. Mm -hmm. And 
like there was a crack and I freaked out and was like, we can't rent because of the crack. And then like, like my mom was like, well, why not? Like, I don't, I didn't even notice the crack. Like you can fix that crack whenever you come up next. So it's just like starting to learn to like kind of let go of things having to be so incredibly perfect and realizing like, where is that line of like, this is in a really great place for guests and it's okay if it's not exactly what I want it to be, because there's a huge difference between like what my vision is and what a guest needs it to be. Absolutely. And around how much money would you say you spend uh, just on renovations so far? Um, on renovations, um, I would probably say probably with renovations it was probably like around 40. Wow. Yeah, and for the record I put aside 15 for renovations. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, so, so I didn't I I didn't accurately uh do the math on that. So and imagine if you had put additional money toward the down payment, you would have had I would have been in a really bad place. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. And I'm, I'm like, you know, a specific case, you know, not everyone wants to do what I do, but I, I work multiple jobs and I was able to utilize that money to funnel into my house when I needed it. Um, and I knew that I was going to be able to do that if I needed to. Um, but not everyone can do that. So you really want to be like extra, sure when you're going into stuff like that that you have a way to funnel in money if you need it because you know the stuff I I had mapped out the renovations that I thought had to be done and everything just cost 17 times more than that and a a lot of it was supply and demand Mm -hmm. because of the time that I bought the house and some of it was like mistakes get made you make a bad you make a bad call and you're like going to do something and and you have to redo it. Or, I mean, also once you get in there, sometimes things are way worse than you originally thought they were. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're dealing with like a hundred year old home like mine. (laughs) For sure. And so when you felt ready to finally list the cabin on Airbnb, uh, talk me through that process. Yeah, so I had been feeling like, so much pressure for months between all all the things that had gone wrong and um and just like the stress of everything that I knew I was like I need this project to kind of like be off my plate in order for me to focus on like my business and my real work like I need to be able to take this off my plate for a little bit so I'd kind of made a decision that I was going to hire a property manager and that was stressful in itself because property managers like good property managers are hard to come by and they can be really expensive. And the range of property managers can range from like a 10% of like what you're making to like 25 or 30%. So, you know, it's really like goes across the gamut. So I, I started interviewing property managers and having them come look at the house and hearing what they had to say. And that was really stressful too. Cause you had people who were like, this house isn't ready And, uh, you know, we only take on houses if you pay a thousand dollars to have professional photos taken of the house or just all these things. And I was like, oh my gosh, more expenses. Like I have to put more money out. I had to put more money out. And it, there was a moment where I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do this myself. I'm not going to be able to have a property manager. And then like, right at the end, I ended up meeting someone that was like the right percentage take that I was comfortable with. He liked the house as it was, was happy to rent it as it was had a lot of really great references, had a lot of great experience and it just like felt right and made sense. And, um, it was the first time I had really like felt that with someone upstate that I was like, Oh, this, this feels like a really good mesh. Um, and so he kind of walked me through what he thought was maybe missing that I hadn't thought of to be ready to rent. Um, and some of that stuff was obvious and some of it was maybe stuff I like hadn't necessarily thought of, but, um, you know, he took care of a lot of the legwork. Like he actually listed it on Airbnb and booking.com and VRB, VRBO and stuff. So I didn't do any of that stuff. He ended up listing it all and sort of hand and handled all that guest stuff. But he also gave a lot of really good advice about like the kinds of photos, which is, I think was like the important thing is you want to think about like when you stay at the house, like the guest experience that you would want to have, like, do you have everything you need? Um, 
does everything feel clean? Do you have like, um, I was really important for me. I wanted people to be able to cook in my house. So I like my, my kitchen is fully decked out. Like you could live there permanently. There's every single thing you could possibly have to cook with. Like there's people who just checked in today. They're staying there for Thanksgiving. And when they reached out and they were like, do we have to bring all of our own stuff? Like they don't have to like, they sent me this whole list of like, do you have this kind of pan and this kind of colander and this kind of bowl and all of these things. And I had them all already. Um, and so like, that makes it like really like, that's a great guest experience. Like it was the reason he decided to go with the house and book the house. And the reason he wanted to stay was because it had all of these amenities to like make their Thanksgiving stay really easy and they didn't have to bring everything from home. Um, so just thinking about like those, those moments, those experiences, like what would you want as a guest and making sure all that stuff is there. And then when you take photos, just making sure that it's not just necessarily like, okay, here's the living room, but like sometimes adding photos for like, you know, if you have a recliner chair or something like, can someone lay, you know, can you see that it's a reclining chair? Can someone lay in that? Like, do you have a, an outdoor area that does something really cool. Like I have a solo stove, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like a very trendy, like outdoor fire pit. And like, that was definitely like, that's a selling point for people. I took these really cool photos like at night with the solo stove out at the fire pit and people like, that's why they booked the house was because they saw that, that that fire pit existed with that solo stove and it like sold them and they really wanted to like have that same moment. Um, so just thinking about those moments and capturing them um, in photos along the way so that like when you list your house that's that's you're selling the house that way my friends love to defer to airbnb uh whenever they want to go on a trip and i can absolutely say the features they always um are on the lookout for in a property would be hot tub or Mm -hmm. fully equipped kitchen (laughs) Exactly. The, the, my property manager was like, can we put a hot tub in here? And I, was like, <laughs> ah. I was like, I really don't want to put a hot tub in because there's like not a great place for it. But my neighbors have one and they've like short term rented their house and he has a multiple houses and like two of his have hot tubs. It's definitely something that people look for and they want. So yeah, you definitely want to think about like, what are the amenities you're adding to your house that feel like unique and different than what other people have? Um, something that I'm, I'm, this is an example of things that I, I wanted to launch with, but it didn't happen because of finances, but I'm probably going to put in this coming year in 2023, which is there's like a platform from like an old shed in my yard and I'm going to have it turned into a mini yoga deck. Um, so like things like that, like if you can find little ways to like, you know, add in little things here and there that make it seem really interesting and fun, like that's going to be a great addition to the photos and a great addition to the reason that people want to stay there when we have that deck up and there's pictures of people doing yoga on the deck, you know, that'll, that'll be a huge selling point. Plus I feel like typically guests are willing to pay a slightly higher price when they know that they're getting all these other little add-ons included. Yes, they are. And I think the other thing that, that I think I've learned too is like, the extra add-ons are the reason that people stay longer. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, you can make good money having people just stay for the weekend for sure. But the way you're actually like putting money in your pocket and just not paying for your mortgage is when people stay for like a week or more at a time. So if you can make it your house, a place that people want to stay for an extended period of time and not like three months, right? We're not doing long-term rentals, but like if they want to stay for a week vacation rather than a two-day vacation, you get so much more cash in your pocket. And when you have those added amenities, that's when people are like, I want to stay there for more than two days. Absolutely. So when, when a guest uh, reaches out on the Airbnb platform, are they Mm -hmm. speaking with your, uh, with your property manager? They are. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So it wow. says like on the profile that I own the house and you obviously, <laughs> you know, since someone called me, um, that you, you have my number, you can absolutely get in touch with me. Um, but my property manager handles everything for me. So I'm really like the last person that you would have, like that you would contact or that you'd be in touch with unless you really need me. He handles everything, but I can see everything and I know what's going on. So I'm on, I'm technically on all of those things. I can see every like 
conversation he's having with each guest and I can see what they're asking. And if they're asking something that I know that like, he maybe doesn't know the answer to, um, you know, like the guest was asking what kind of pots and pans, like I even have a turkey roaster at my house. Like that's not something that he would necessarily know. So I like messaged him and let him know like all those, all the things I had in the kitchen. Um, so I can have those conversations with him on the side, but as a whole, no, like it alleviates me from having to even have those conversations with people. Got it. Amazing. Yeah. So it really should, I mean, it really should in essence be like, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. Um, today having, hearing from a guest was like a a very strange thing that doesn't like normally happen. Normally my property manager is completely you know, the one who's talking to them, but they can see that they're talking to him and not to me. It's not like he signs stuff with my name. They He signs it with him and they can see that he's a property manager. Cool. And yeah. just to, I guess, wrap things up a little bit here, what would you say would be a couple of things that you would do differently if you were to, you know, purchase another property? Yeah, I think something I would definitely do is um, I would I would leave I would know this time that you need more money put aside than I had originally put aside um, for things that could possibly go wrong. So I think like if you whatever you think your cushion should be for like things, you should probably double it um, just in case. Right. Worst case scenario, you just have more money in your pocket, but you should just definitely double it because you, you want to be prepared for that stuff. So if you think it's going to be 15, you should make it 30. <laughs> um, and then I think also try to vet people like three times as much as you think you have to. I think especially when you're dealing with like, if you're buying an investment property, you're probably buying in an area that's like very overrun with other people doing the same thing. And that's when scam artists happen. And that's when like, um, unreliable people sort of come out of the woodworks. And so I think like anytime you can get references or suggestions from other people in the area, join apps like the Upstate Curious app. Like once I joined that app and I started really using it and asking people for help, like it really eliminated some of those issues because you're getting like first person advice and suggestions from people who have already worked with that exact person and had a positive experience and not just like going through Yelp or meeting with someone who's telling you how great they are. Um, so like I try now to like not do anything unless I've gotten like, like vetted like three different times, like three different references from somewhere that like, this is like a safe person to work with and a good choice. Like it took me a really long time to find a great plumber. And now like, uh, my plumber is so great and I recommend him to everybody. Um, but like, those are really important people to have in your pocket, but you definitely want to make sure they're the right people that work for you. So definitely vetting them. Allison, thank you so much for taking us through this journey and giving us all these amazing tips. I'm not even ready to purchase a property yet, but now I'm going to like go on Air DNA and like play with it's some fun. numbers. And <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us where we can find you. Um, if you want to plug your tea business, your PR consulting business, give us all the plugs. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to see my house, I actually do have an Instagram account for it. Um, on Instagram, it's at Streamside Chalet. Um, so you can check out the house and see the actual property and it links back to my Airbnb account. So you guys can see it there. Um, and then if you want to follow me, my Instagram is at Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N. U-L-L-O, which is my last name. Amazing. Thank you so much, Allison. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope this was like helpful to you and to other people. And by all means, reach out if you have questions. I'm all about helping other people have the most positive experience they can and to help mitigate any any of the things that that went, um, you know, a- any of the, the issues that I had to help make sure that that didn't happen. Amazing. Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Not Rich Yet podcast. Hit the subscribe button to Spotify or Apple or whatever platform you normally listen on knows that you enjoyed this podcast. And so I know you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure you're keeping up with us on Instagram so you can be the first to know when a new episode airs. We also post some resources that you can use along your wealth building journey. 
We're on Instagram as at notrichyetpod. And if you want to give me a follow too, I will not say no to that. I'm on Instagram as at the Jasmine Sue. T-H-E-J-A-S-M-I-N-S-U. I do all the planning and sourcing and emailing and interviewing, but this podcast couldn't happen without a few extra hands. Not Rich Yet is produced by Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and edited by Will Tarashak, founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and the founder of Willie T Productions. I'm your host, Jasmine Suknanen, and I'll be back with more next week.